So, what do the challenges inherent to equitable philanthropy, light rail construction, and the sanctity of sacred space have in common? Well, according to Eric Takashita, they all meet in a place he refers to as creative people power. Now, Eric is one of those rare individuals who make an impression and a difference by calling upon both the head and the heart. I spoke to him about his life's path in early 2020, just before the COVID justice stew began to boil over. Story, 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 story. From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and transformation. I'm Bill Cleveland. Part one, shoulders and ladders. You are the first person that I have ever seen use one of those back scratchers. Oh, yeah, things. these are awesome. <laughs> I love these. I have them here at my desk so I can use it all the time. That is wonderful. Yeah. That is. I have two. I have one well, here and I have one upstairs. There you go. Okay, a true addiction. <laughs> so I'll just start. You've had a, a long and a storied career in a world that spans many realms some of which don't normally come together. Art, community development, storytelling, art making, being a potter. So I'm just going to ask, how do you describe what you do in the world? I'll try to answer your question by naming what I'm most interested in and my passion is this nexus of, of how art and culture can be leveraged to, to, to create a, a healthy, more equitable and sustainable world and planet and community. I, I have been very, very fortunate to have had a, a number of different platforms from which to pursue that passion. I've had the opportunity to work in the community development sector. I've had the opportunity to work in the arts community. I've had a chance to, to be an artist. I've had a chance to work in philanthropy. I've had a chance to work in, in government. Um, but what I would say is that through the through line for all that work is is really, the, the for me, it's this intersection of how art and culture uh, really ties to building healthier and stronger communities, particularly uh, within historically marginalized communities, communities of color uh, in particular, and other other historically disinvested. So that's what I do, right? I do work that really is about supporting those communities, communities by helping them tap into that the power of our culture that I believe exists in every person in every community, uh, and really trying to help support and facilitate. The the, uh, the unleashing and channeling of that energy. I think one of the important things I'll mention is that there's no such thing as an art desert, which is sometimes said. And I think that's just false. Right? Art and culture exists everywhere and is available to everyone. Perhaps it needs to be supported, perhaps it needs to be nurtured, or it needs to be drawn out. But I think that, that it exists and um, it needs to be celebrated and facilitated. I think what it's much like, um, you know, kind of how there is solar power because the sun exists, or there is wind power because uh, the wind exists. And what we need to do is help, perhaps, sometimes create the the, uh, the capacity to, have to harness and transmit that power that exists. I want to give credit to Halicon Collaborative and Spring for the Arts because those are ideas that come out of their creative people power report, right? This idea of that, that latent, the people power that exists and how we just need to tap into it and draw from it. But I very much believe in a lot of that. So there are some people who would say, well, we live in a very challenging time and the issues 
of the day are daunting and why would something like art and culture be a primary resource for um, addressing uh, these kinds of things? Why art and culture? Well, I guess I would actually challenge the first part of that statement, which, I mean, to be sure we live in challenging times relative to most many of our lifetimes. Sure, things are kind of interesting right now in terms of geopolitics or climate change. But when we look back at the 20th century, we go back to civil rights, to the Vietnam protests, to, you know, Kent State. You, you go back further to World War Two and the Holocaust, the Depression, the Great War, the flu pandemic. So that's just the 20th century, right? So I guess I feel that we have a distorted view of history. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to diminish mm-hmm. the, the difficulty, the pain, and the suffering. I, I, it would be interesting how this era and this period plays out in a historical context. So, first. <laughs> Second is that I, I would say that art and culture is always essential. In, fa- in fact, it's perhaps most essential in those trying times, right? It is, is perhaps most essential when we as individuals and we as communities are struggling because it's actually part of what makes us human. It's part of what creates our connections to our, our humanity, but also our connections to one another. But it's, it can be the, the kind of the glue that can help bind us together in common experience and inspiration and ideas. So to me, the answer is, it's not why would we do it? It's that in those challenging times, it's the very time in which we must, right? That's, that's the path forward. That's the way that we will uh, emerge from any challenges I think we have, right? Is by, by seeking that inspiration, by seeking that meaning making, by seeking those connections that art and culture can uniquely help to provide. So how did you come to this? You have a pretty clear outline and focus for your work. I would imagine growing up, there were not a lot of people doing what you're doing now. And yeah, so what's the path? So my path is one of, of a lot of luck, is what I would first say. I've been very blessed. I would be quick to say that I've been given a lot of privilege, right, in terms of the opportunities I was given by family, my parents, the, those that came before me, uh, things in terms of education and, and what have you, access. I was allowed at an early age to, to explore my creative expression, and I found that outlet through through ceramics, right, through as, an, as a potter. I went through high school and, and received a scholarship to go to undergraduate uh, all for ceramic work. And so I found that as a, as a vehicle for expression. Another piece of my journey, though, is being the son of a social worker and a, and a public school librarian. Um, you know, this idea of service, this idea of, of needing to give back. Uh, another piece of my journey is is that yeah I'm a I'm a fourth generation Japanese American that was born and raised in St Paul Minnesota and I grew up a time when I thought you were the white or the black and I was neither and it was through the arts that I was able to find my place in this geography right so it's through the work of uh, Asian American Renaissance uh, and theater moves and performing arts to really helped me find my place and identity here uh, in this community. And, and the other piece I'd say is, and it's also that I, might just biographically, for me, I was sent to private high schools and private colleges. I have been given a lot of privilege and a choice along the way to either kind of say, 
wow, look at me, aren't I great and fortunate, and I'm going to take all my marbles and go home. Or I can make a choice to say, now I have an obligation and a responsibility to ensure that those are coming behind me have those types of opportunities, right? Like That is, I can either pick up the ladder behind me or I can choose to extend it back down for those that may be coming in future generations. That challenging history you mentioned earlier, the World War II, the Depression, the Holocaust, these are times when selfless human cooperation made all the difference. Some would say right now we're living at a time when sharing those ladders is really an open question. Could you say a a bit more about the sense of responsibility you grew up with? I think for me, it's, it's really clear that I have an obligation and responsibility to kind of pay it forward. Right? I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me, and I hope to be shoulders upon which future generations can then stand upon. Right? And my goal is to really try to carve a path, to create shelter, to whatever it may be that is needed to support those that are going to be coming in the future, because that's truly how we're going to change the world, right? It's not going to be one person that will be many of us. Uh, so, you know, my grandfather was a plantation worker. He was a, a laborer. He was a you know, janitor and not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, my mother was the first in her uh, generation, the first woman to graduate from college. My father was the first in his family to graduate from college when my grandmother, my, my mother's mother, was born a U.S. citizen, and she lost her citizenship when she married my grandfather, who immigrated when he was 16 to work in the, in the sugarcane fields because he was an alien ineligible for citizenship. So my grandmother was undocumented most of her life. She lost her U.S. citizenship when she married my grandfather and had to take the citizenship test to get a passport so she could leave the United States, even though she was born a U.S. citizen, right? So that... <laughs> My mom, their family, was relocated five different times because of highway construction, right? Uh, as they were building the freeway in Honolulu, they had to move. They, they were poor, and they lived in this section of town where the freeway went through eventually. And so they had to move five different—she went to six different schools in seven years because they kept on having to move. So these issues around whether it's immigration or if it's about you know displacement, these are the stories— of my family. Certainly it's never happened to me, but I but I know of these stories. I know these things happen and they shape who I am and they, they give me the sense of obligation responsibility, right? If I don't speak up, if I don't do what I can do to help others, that to happen to my family, I need to make sure that doesn't happen to others. I don't often use the term social justice, but I guess because I don't think it's about social justice, it's just about doing the right thing. But um, for me, that's how I come to the focus of my work around building stronger and healthier communities, where I really see the power of people-centered approaches to building stronger communities. So, you know, over time, we've, we've, we've constantly, over human history, been built, you know, having built environments. And the ones that I believe are the strongest, healthiest, best places are those that are driven by and, and kind of informed by uh, those that are going to be living there. What a story. And uh, as long as I've known you, a good portion of that is, is new to me. And I appreciate your, your sharing, particularly the generational layers. One of the things that is obvious is that you're not doing work separate from the 
story of your life and your family. It is organically connected to that lineage and your own personal life experience, which is another privilege to be able to manifest a work that rises up from who we are. Part two, agency and connections. When I asked Eric to share a story or two about his work, it was obvious that this sense of responsibility for extending ladders had translated directly to his work with communities. He began by describing a new program he helped develop at the Bush Foundation in St. Paul. Um, the, the story that I would say that is, that is top of mind for me is, is, comes from my most recent work, which was at the Bush Foundation, which is a a private foundation that's located in St. Paul that, that serves uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, and 23 million nations that share the geography. And at the time, I was stewarding a role as a, a portfolio director for community creativity, really looking at the role of arts and culture in helping uh, foster creative problem solving across the region. Part of it was to recognize if we want to help make the region better for everyone, we need to help make the region better for those that are doing least well. And in that process, we also need to have strategies that are geared towards specific populations within that broader goal. We all will do better if we all do better. Um, so uh, we were able to create a program there that was really focused on and centered in uh, Black, Indigenous, and, and people of color, as well as in rural communities. You look at the numbers, you look at the statistics, and you say, okay, well, those communities have been historically underinvested. And perhaps not coincidentally, <laughs> those are communities that also are statistically doing least well, right? You have income, wealth, health outcomes, education outcomes. So we, the idea was to, to really say, can we invest in a culture in these communities really as a way of helping to achieve those other outcomes, right? It's, it's for me, it was never sufficient to invest in the arts and culture as much as invest in arts and culture as a way of driving towards these other community outcomes of, of health disparities or income disparities or education. And I, and I named that because to me, the story is that I believe that uh, the, way, the only way that we can change some of these broader social ills is it has to start with the individual. An individual must believe he or she can actually make a difference in their life. And this idea of hope. Right? We, we've seen over and over that if one is in despair, if one has nothing to lose, then one doesn't actually try to make things better. So it has to start with hope and a belief that they can actually make a difference in their own life. Right? Sometimes called agency. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're starting to describe a theory, a, a story, a change. If a community is going to move towards social, economic health, towards justice, these are the foundations. Right. So, so one has to have hope and inspiration, and one has to have agency at the individual level. One. Two is that you then also need to have connections, right? And I've already outlined for me, like the work, what I saw through the work of Theodore Moo or, or Asian American Renaissance is the, the power of having that sense of community, that, that, that sometimes called bonding capital, right? And finally, that when people have hope and, and agency and they have connections, that that can then lead to collective efficacy. People can come together and together they can try to solve problems. So that's all a kind of a necessary underpinning for me about 
how change happens in communities. And what's interesting to me is that art and culture becomes an easy on-ramp for them. It becomes a way to practice some of those skills. It becomes a way to help give people a sense of agency and a sense of hope. Right? It can be inspiring and they can participate in things and they can say, oh, I can make a difference in the world. Right? Um, as a potter, when I throw a pot, I, take a, I literally take a lump of mud and I can transform it into you know, this coffee cup that I can drink my coffee out of. Like, that's kind of amazing, right? And it's been happening for millennia. Yeah. Every day throughout history and prehistory. Like, humans have been doing this for thousands of years in a similar way. Like, wow, that's really interesting. So, but I've made a difference in the world. Like, there's a physical difference that I've created in the world. So that's, I, to me, art and culture can help give people a sense of agency. It can also connect people in new and exciting ways. It can be fun. It can be surprising. It can be, you know, in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect. I, yeah, when you dance the light rail shuffle with the mayor, your interactions with him change forever, right? Because you have a different relationship now to this human being because you participated in this art act, right? So, so it can create different connections. Hope and that agency can then create power that can change systems and communities. So to me, what we were trying to do with, with a Bush Foundation was to support art and culture, focused on that idea of building agency and hope, creating connections with an eye towards changing their communities for the better. Um, we selected four organizations, all of which were led by or serving people of color and led by or serving rural communities. Um, and we said, and you know what's best. We will support you. We'll give you general operating money. We're not going to dictate what it needs to be used for. And we will support you and your uh, your growth, what capacities you want to build, we will support you with that. Right? Going to a conference, going to do a site visit with another partner, going to a training, hiring, consult, whatever it may be, that we will support that in an in a unrestricted kind of way. There's a so what's changed? Just I just heard that the, the interim evaluation will be coming out later this week, and, and then we started to see the results, that people are, are doing that work. They are taking up that responsibility for themselves. Uh, in terms of helping to make those connections and really helping to build their capacity, and that you are then seeing the results uh, um, in the communities. That you're seeing um, you know, more activities that are happening where they feel they're having more impact in their community. Right? And to me, that's the promise, right? To, to your earlier question about, you know, in challenging times, why art and culture? Well, in challenging times, there's a huge opportunity for art and culture to then when there's, a, when there's a, a disruption or a need to disrupt the status quo, there's the opportunity to do something different. And I think that we then need to be prepared to step into that fray and to maximize that opportunity. And so this is a, this is a program that I'm really excited about and see you know, what will come of it over the next few years because it's about really preparing arts and cultural organizations to have the relationships and have the muscles uh, and for the people that they then work with in their communities to be able to have that agency and connection to be able to create those changes over time. One of the things that occurs to me is that some people might think, oh, well, okay, so this foundation is basically just forcing people to go down this weird road of using art to try and change their community. And I'm aware of, and I'm sure you will reiterate, that there are open arms in those places for these opportunities to manifest 
collaborative work and decision making and designing and problem solving using local creative resources. It's not some external crazy idea. Right. It's absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely indigenous to these communities, right? It's coming from the places. Um, but I would also say that it's arts and cultural organizations. While there are some that are kind of your traditional arts centers, if you will, there's churches and boys and girls clubs and youth programs and housing organizations and healthcare centers and people that are working with people with developmental disabilities, right? I mean, it's, it's across the gamut. So, so what I would say is that if the focus is on the arts and culture, you will arrive at a certain outcome. If your focus is on better community outcomes and art and culture is a tool, a, a method, an approach, a way that you can help to achieve that community outcome, you may end up with a different set of parts. So this is very much focused on we're, we're seeking to improve communities. We were seeking to help people, uh, you know, make the region better for everyone. And there are, there's many different organizations that may achieve that uh, who employ and help you work with artists to, to get to that end. But the creation of the art isn't the end. The creating a more welcoming community or the creating right. housing or helping prevent abuse or working with kids, that's the end. And art and culture is a tool and a vehicle and a process and an approach that we use to achieve that thing, as opposed to the end being the art itself, which is absolutely critical and necessary, and I want that and I need that. And in this particular instance, that wasn't the intended objective. Part three. Working on the railroad. Eric's second story is about a creative placemaking initiative called Irrigate in St. Paul, Minnesota during the construction of a new section of light rail called the Green Line. Now, Irrigate was designed to mitigate community disruption caused by this massive construction project through the heart of the city. It was created in partnership with Springboard for the Arts, the City of St. Paul, and the Twin Cities Local Initiative Support Corporation. It was funded by Art Place America. Irrigate trained artists as community organizers and leaders, facilitated partnerships between artists and businesses, and funded small-scale arts projects that, in the words of the organizers, created surprise, joy, and delight. I asked Eric to set the scene. The role of art and culture in responding to community challenge, an opportunity, right? Really kind of helping to shift and reframe. And the opportunity in this case was the construction of, of light rail line through St. Paul, Minnesota. And it was going down a major commercial corridor that had a number of communities which have historically been disinvested. It had a number of smaller businesses, immigrant businesses, and this is a billion dollar train line that was going to be disrupting their business, right? I mean, it would literally tore out sidewalks so people couldn't get to businesses. You couldn't see signage for businesses. You, you weren't able to access them in many ways. And the grave fear was that during the construction of this, this train that many of these businesses just couldn't sustain the loss of business. They'd be lost, and they would then be replaced with other businesses that would come in once the train had opened up and people saw the potential and possibility. So the, the worst case scenario is that you'd have this incredible displacement and gentrification along the rear line. And the intention was really to say, we, we ultimately have to see development, but we also don't want to see displacement, voluntary or involuntary. Um, 
psychological or financial. And so how do we help ensure that the businesses that are here now can stay in the long term and develop a, an arts and culture-based intervention to really help support artists to build relationships with uh, small businesses along the corridor where the development was occurring and, and to develop it and implement projects. And what was nice about this, there's a couple of different threads. One is that it was open to any artists that lived, worked, or had an affinity to this place, this corridor, right? And that was artists self-selected, right? So that was important. It wasn't about artists parachuting in from Mars, <laughs> but, but they had a connection. They also then had a formal relationship with the businesses. You know, we helped do a very brief kind of training. They'd go out and, and they'd connect with the business and they'd say, hey, tell me about your business and tell me about your concerns and here's some of the things I could offer and how might I be able to help you? And, and it really building reciprocal relationships. The intention here was as much about building that set of relationships where artists and people from the community had a connection with their business owners, right? This idea of building a parallel infrastructure of relationships that was kind of parallel to the physical infrastructure that was being built. So kind of the, the software, if you will, to go with the hardware, right? There's a train line going on. And the train line will not in and of itself build community, but people being in relationship will help build community, right? And so how do you do that? Good question. How do you do that with all those moving parts and unknowns? What ended up happening, though, is that, you know, hundreds of projects that were small interventions occurred along this corridor. And what we saw was that those artists that lived in the neighborhood started to say, oh, wait a minute, there's a billion-dollar thing that's happening to me, but there's something that I can actually do here to help support this business that I care about. Right? It was about giving people a mechanism to exercise their agency, to give them hope and that belief that they could make a difference. Right? It was that building that cohesion, that connections right, between artists and community because they had a chance to meet with other artists, right? The power of a t-shirt should not be underestimated. And then collectively, in aggregate, what we found was that all these cool little projects, right, were a way of shifting the narrative from one of hand-wringing, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world, the sky is falling, to, hey, there's some cool stuff going on down here. And there's these eclectic businesses and there's these artists and that, like, people should check it out, right? And so, Numerically, from a data perspective, at the end of the construction period, we were able to quantify the number of media impressions generated by these artists' projects. And on a per dollar basis, were far more effective than the marketing strategy, which was about billboards and commercials to tell people to come to the court. So you had earned media that had just as many media impressions as this entire marketing, right? And it was by supporting artists and small businesses, right? And there's something telling in that insofar as it was about stories of people, right? It was about, it was, there's an authenticity to it. It wasn't about, hey, you should come here because it's the right thing to do. But it was like, hey, there's something cool here. <laughs> and let's highlight it. Let's amplify it. Let's showcase it. So at the end of the day, and I, and I remember looking at, at some of the data on the, the incredible number of interesting, quirky, positive stories that emerged from what was essentially a construction zone. Was there a, a sense that it helped mitigate the potential loss of business for, for many of the businesses? There, there's anecdotal evidence that it did. It, 
and particularly in episodic ways, right? So when there was an event, yes, more people came in. It's unclear as to to what extent it didn't save businesses. Some, some businesses absolutely failed. You know, whether they would have or not in any case. What I would say, though, as, as important as the art project, it is about that parallel infrastructure was developed. That you have a whole community now that sees itself really in this way of, like, we are creative. We have these assets. We, we can tap into our creative power. We can effectuate change in our community. We can make it better. Even in the midst of this chaos, we can do something that helps improve our community. We have these now relationships, whether it's with a business or, as I mentioned, you know, one of the artists did this, she choreographed this thing called the Light Rail Shuffle, and there were these invitations to do it as a pop-up. One time the mayor is there, and when you do the light rail shuffle with the mayor, you have a different relationship to the mayor. And to sit for me, there's a greater sense that, that we are a creative community and that we can now effectuate change. So you see now, years later, you see um, the Frogtown Neighborhood Association doing a small area plan with an artist, right? You see community-based efforts to revitalize the Victoria Theater. You see Springer for the Arts actually opening up their new headquarters on the corridor in an old car dealership. So you see the Creative Enterprise Zone and doing a series of, of, of murals that are they, this whole thing around public art and the Creative Enterprise Zone and mural artists and really trying to help support businesses. You see, you know, the cultural communities, you see Little Africa, you see the Asian Economic Development Association really leveraging the the their culture as a way of supporting their business districts and their small entrepreneurs and their communities. So I think to me, it's about the mindset and the tapping into the creative potential and quite frankly, giving people the practice, right? The, the practice of doing that, right? I, I personally, when I win the lottery bill, I'm going to commission a study of neuroscience, right? Because all the stuff on neuroplasticity suggest that, you know, the brain can change. If I don't believe I can make a difference, I can't make a difference. If I'm able to see a difference, if I'm able to help be a part of creating a small intervention that makes a difference, I feel good about it, I've got to believe it starts to fire these different neurons in my brain that say, oh, that was good, that was fun. I feel good about that. I should do that again. And so it's about building these muscles. It's about on-ramps to help build muscles, right? It's these small interventions, lots of littles, that help give people practice at doing things, which then enable them to say, oh, I can now take on the next thing. So to me, that's the outcome, that long-term impact that we are seeing uh, and kind of the ripples. So what I'm hearing you say is, is that what started as an opportunity around construction that was time-limited and had a beginning and a middle and an end moved from the original story, we're on thin ice and we're going to end up losing our community. Actually, the story now is we all know more people, we all have more of a connection to each other, and we actually have a common culture. The legacy is more than the spreadsheet. That's correct. Right. Well, and, I, and, I, and I guess I would suggest it, it's like the, it's the ripples in the pod, right? So Stephen Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, 
He talks about this idea of the product and then the production capacity. And so oftentimes the product is the widget. Or in the case of art, it's the object or the theater piece or the music or the artifact. And oftentimes the production capacity, I think, at least when I was trained, it was about my muse. It was about me and my creative process in the studio. In community, it's about that process that is used by which we get the outcome. So you can have two murals that are both equally beautiful and amazing, but have two completely different processes by which they were arrived at. And I would suggest that the one that is driven by the artist and by his or her or their own muse, and they kind of dream it up, is different than one where the community is actively participating in it from the ideation and, and the creation of it and physically putting paint on the wall you end up with a different thing there, right? And so I think we need to be examining not just the product, but also what is the production capacity. Because to me, an investment in that production capacity is unrepeatable. Once you invest in that capacity, that capacity can then not create just one mural, but it can create multiple murals. It can create other types of outcomes, right? That set of Again, going back to that equation of I have to have agency and hope, I have to have connections, those two things can be applied to any number of community outcomes, one of which could be a mural, but the other could be a public policy, right? the other could be a housing project, it could be, it could be a, anything. So, and I think in a time of, of limited and constrained resources, when we have finite resources, then we, we need to make investments that have that type of mo- multiple bottom line, right? where I can not only get the product, Often people define success or failure based on the material commodified spreadsheet outcomes. But when you dig deeper into the history of continuing work in community, uh, the members of the community will point to their relationships and the relationships that have spawned by those relationships as the primary asset that derives from the work. You get the mural story, but then you get the making the mural story and the next mural story, and then the coalition that got created around those relationships that was going to improve educational opportunities that had nothing to do with the mural, but everything to do with the, the trust that was uh, that was built as a result exactly. of that. So, so I would say two things. One, you're going to prevail based on the relationships that you are. Change moves at the speed of trust. I, I also would be remiss if I didn't share one other story, which is not mine to share, but uh, was one that I was honored to participate in. Part four, Mauna Kea. I don't know if you've been tracking the work that's going out on and Hawaii at the 30-meter telescope on Mauna Kea. So there's a consortium of scientists that are trying to build a 30-meter telescope, a telescope that's 100, over 100 feet <laughs> on the top of Mauna Kea. Uh, it would be the umpteenth number. I, I don't remember exactly how many observatories already exist, but every time one is built, there's assurances made to the Native Hawaiian community that this will be the last one. Well, this one's three times larger than anything else has been built. So, um, and, and finally, the Native communities kind of said, enough is enough. And they, uh, starting back in July, have been basically um, occupying uh, the access road to Mauna Kea to prevent construction. With the idea, not just enough is enough, but that to construct this, it will require the desecration of sacred sites. And that just because a building doesn't exist, like a cathedral, like it's still a sacred site. <laughs> and that what we have to honor and recognize that. And so... 
so the, the native Hawaiian, the, the kapuna, the elders have helped to, to really build a movement, right? And there's like thousands of people that have supported this work. In July of 2020, when the occupation of Mauna Kea was just getting underway, Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman interviewed native Hawaiian activist and school teacher Pua Case. Here's how she described what is at stake on the mountain. Mauna Kea is a sacred mountain for us here in Hawaii. Mauna Kea is genealogically linked to the native people of these lands. Mauna Kea is known as our kupuna, our ancestor, our teacher, our protector, our corrector, and our guide. So why we are standing for this mountain is quite simple, Amy, and thank you for having me on the show. If I could put it very simply, I would say, if we don't stand for the most sacred, what will we stand for? And if not now, when will we stand? Eric went on to describe his experience on Mauna Kea had the chance to be there in October to participate in what they do. A few times a day they were doing what they call protocol. Protocol is really around ancient Native Hawaiian wisdom uh, that includes songs and music and hula and oli, the chants, right, as a way of really asking ancestors for their support, but by binding the community together, telling the story of what's happening. And there's all these new, this new, what would, what in the West we call art that's coming out of it, right? New dances, new songs, new chants, new what have you, are being generated. But it's all really grounded in, centered on the Native Hawaiian community and, and the mountain, on, on, on the mountain, right? And I think that that, to me, it's not about art. And it's not about creative peacemaking or creative peacekeeping or any of the words we want to use. This is about, like, how people express themselves. <laughs> This is about how people understand their place in relationship to each other, but also in relationship to the land and the sky and the ocean, and how they understand themselves in relationship to time, their ancestors and the future generations. Like what I witnessed as an observer right now is the power of, of song, of chanting, uh, story, to be able to, to help people be in right relationship with the land, with the sky, with the ocean, with the plants, and then it with one another, and then temporarily over generations. You ask about challenges, and you ask about art and culture, and why. Like, that, to me, is the quintessential example of what we're talking about. That's more than any of those other stories I've already shared. Like, that's the real thing, right, is... Uh, for me, and, and and so the question is, how do we generate more? And you know, I think you start to see that someone at Standing Rock with water protectors, and so I think that to me is where we see the true power, right, of, of our culture to help give meaning, to make connections. There's a reason why people are drawn to it and have been for millennia. So for millennia, yes, yeah. So in many ways, what we're remembering. <laughs> is an impulse and a power that has manifested for humans in the earth for thousands and thousands of years. Well, Eric, um, I think with that story, uh, which 
to me, puts a point on the point. Really appreciate that. Thank you. You know, we had the privilege of hanging out with each other a lot over a period of time, and I cannot say how much I miss it. And uh, this is just evidence of the richness of that relationship. I appreciate it. Right back at you. I'm so grateful. I talk about the, the shoulders of those who I stand upon, and absolutely, you've been so important for me in my journey. Eric, I think our journeys are joined. And for this part of it, at least, we're going to have to bring to a close. So thanks again to you for your stories and insights. Now, before I sign off, I'd like to add an August 2020 postscript to Eric's Manakia story. From what I understand, while there is still a protector's camp in place, the majority of those gathered on the mountain have withdrawn. It's also been announced that construction is on hold until the spring of 2021. On top of that, the National Science Foundation has indicated that they are considering a new round of funding to pay for the cost of the project's delays. If this happens, it would require a new environmental impact report, which could take as long as three years. Story, story, story. Thank you for tuning in, for being here. Please join us for our next episode. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and directed by Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are by Judy Munson. And please, if you've been provoked or inspired, join the continuing conversation and check out our show notes at the Center's website at www.artandcommunity.com. And please note that subscribing to Change the Story, Change the World is a great, no-cost way of supporting our work.